0: Good morning, Saints. Uh, my name is Perry, and uh, boy, it's just great to be with you this morning. Um, if you know anything about me, uh, you probably know I read a lot of books. I enjoy books. Uh, I have too many books, more than I will probably read in the rest of my lifetime. <clears throat> but every now and then, you run across a book that is really formative, that, that really marks you, that... Um, that alters your world. And I've I've run across many books like that over the years, and and one of them is a book by uh, a gal named Johnny Erickson Tata who wrote a book called When God Weeps. When God Weeps. You might know her as the woman who was injured in a diving accident as a teenager, leaving her paralyzed from the neck down from age 17 on. And many of the trials that you and I deal with, you know, they they last a week, maybe a month, maybe a few months. But she has endured this severe trial for the last 55 years and probably will till the end of her life. And in her book, she talks about a great variety of trials that Christians have suffered. And I'd like to share just just one of those stories with you this morning. She writes concerning a man named John McAllister. John is a six-foot-three-inch man who volunteers at nursing homes. He's always looking for ways to keep active, keep serving, keep doing. But a degenerative nerve disease has caused him to be bent and withered and paralyzed and wheelchair-bound. The only food that he can have comes through a syringe to his abdomen. Showers are the one normal thing he clings to. Everything else is yesterday. Months pass. The air is chillier, kind of like today. The days are shorter, and John, John's wheelchair now sits unused in the corner. He's too weak to sit in it anymore. His bed is now in the center of the living room, and John is in it. Nighttimes are no longer friendly. Gravity is his enemy as the weight of the air settles on his chest. Breathing is heavy labor. And calling out is impossible. But he needs to call out on this night. Because in the darkness, a little ant finds him. The scout sends for others and they come, first hundreds, then thousands. A noiseless legion inches its way down the chimney, across the floor, secretly crawling up his urine tube, up, over, and onto his bed. They fan out over the hills and valleys of John's blanket, tunneling under and then onto his body. He is covered by a black, wriggling invasion. John's wife, along with his nurse, found him in the early morning with ants still in his hair, in his mouth, and his eyes. His skin was badly bitten and burned. John is a Christian. He's a Christian. His God can see in the dark. I just want to say, why in the name of heaven? Why? God, who are you? This isn't a story, you know, about torn ligaments on a football field. It's not a polite refusal letter for financial aid to Princeton. Or heartache over a returned engagement ring. No, this is crazy. This is suffering stalking a person down and ripping into his sanity. This is affliction spiraling out of control. Suffering like this, you might think, would never draw me to God. It would push me away from Him. Are we to assume that that suffering like this helps a person know God better? That his purpose is to somehow move one up a few notches closer to God? That this is God's idea of accomplishing something deep and profound in our lives? And this is just one of a multitude of stories that Christians have gone through and are going through. One young couple that we know personally are devout Christians. They have a four-year-old son who just started having these severe seizures. And just recently, the doctors removed a a portion of his brain, leaving him partly paralyzed. And so there's a good chance that he's going to need round-the-clock care for the rest of his life. Another dear Christian that we know has suffered extreme financial need ever since her husband left her for another woman. Job, of course, was known for all the trouble he experienced. And in Job chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says this, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout up from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And as Travis said, today we are embarking on a new study Through the book of James, who also was no stranger to trouble, he was the oldest half-brother of Jesus, who John records rejected Jesus as the Messiah along with all of his other brothers. He didn't become a follower of Jesus until after Jesus' resurrection, but then he went on to become one of the chief leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He, his, his letter was originally sent out to Jewish Christians who were dispersed outside of Israel. And it's, the dating of the book is around 45 to 50 A.D. And it makes it one of, one of the earliest writings of the whole New Testament. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, James was stoned to death for his faith in about 62 A.D. by order of the Jewish high priest Ananus. And the book seems to have been written to a people experiencing poverty and oppression. We know that there was a famine in Judea in 46 AD, as well as a lot of political and social upheaval and turmoil. And so not surprisingly, the very first thing that James addresses is what? Trials, suffering, pain. Is that not relevant? (laughs) Can you relate? Yes, James is that one author who has the audacity to say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. (sighs) Have you ever tried to encourage someone with that verse who was going through trials? What was their response? You know, did they roll their eyes at you? Did they laugh out loud? Did they, you know, scowl at you or growl at you or maybe throw something at you? (laughs) But more importantly, what is your response when you're going through a trial and you read this verse or someone shares it with you? You know, when your flight gets canceled, when your water pipe freezes and breaks, flooding your house, when you go in for a routine physical and you leave with a devastating diagnosis or like me this past week when you wake up with plantar fasciitis I didn't even know what that was and your foot is in so much pain that you can barely walk when that next pain or inconvenience or disappointment or life-altering news strikes what do you do? Do you have a victim mentality or a victor mentality? Do you view your trial as meaningless or purposeful? Is your goal to just, you know, grin and bear it, just get through it, or seek God and learn from it? Do you grumble and complain, or do you count it all joy? Do you believe God is angrily punishing you or lovingly perfecting you? You see, how we view God and his purposes for our lives, it determines which one of these it's going to be. You know, it's A.W. Tozer famously wrote this. you probably heard it before. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because it determines so much of how we respond to things in this life. Our view of God is incredibly important. We won't pass those tests. Fortunately, God does not just glibly say to those who suffer, consider it all joy, or it's not so bad, or there's always a silver lining in every little rain cloud. No. He's not being trite. superficial or simplistic here, nor is he being cruel. He's not. Because he goes on to unpack and elaborate on the reasons for this admonition. And we need to understand those reasons as if our lives depended on it. So we're going to focus on better understanding those reasons this morning. Now, the book of James is, is a pretty controversial book in the Bible, so much so that the 16th century reformer Martin Luther called it the epistle of straw, (laughs) the epistle of straw. He didn't think, he thought it should just be relegated to the very end of the New Testament. And James wasn't even recognized by the whole church as inspired until the fourth century. And yet, it is one of the most quoted and intensely practical books Of the whole New Testament. It contains more imperative verbs exhorting us to action than any other New Testament book. And the reason I want to preface our next 14 weeks in this book with this thought is because it would be better for us to not hear what James has to say to us than to hear it but not apply it. Later in this very first chapter, James himself warns us that if we are merely hearers but not doers of his word, then we're actually deceiving ourselves. Anybody here want to leave this auditorium this morning more deceived than when you came in? Trust me, it's very easy to do. All you have to do is listen for inspiration rather than application very easy so let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1 it's on page 1011 and let's pray that by the grace of God we would leave this place different people <laughs> Father in heaven we, we know that we can view your word so so very differently it can just get skewed in so many ways we can read your commands as though they were just mere suggestions we can think of everybody else who needs to apply it without applying it ourselves and we can dismiss it as too legalistic or else use it as a pathway to self-righteousness and so we ask each of us would hear it in faith with a view to obey with the right motives, and in the context of your gospel of grace. Lord, we know this is not an epistle of straw. It's an intensely practical and challenging letter for our growth in Christ-likeness. So please change us through it. Change our thought patterns and our habits, even the most ingrained ones. The most entrenched ones for your namesake, for your glory, we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, James 1, we're going to read the first 12 verses together. Here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers. This this is just the first thing that stood out to me. Notice how James does not leverage the fact that he is Jesus' brother. Just kind of curious. I mean, that that takes some humility, right? He views himself as nothing more than a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's enough. That's enough. His identity is in Christ, so he feels no need to self-promote promote himself, even to all these these churches he's writing to. We also see that James was not written to one single church, but rather to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is a reference to Jewish Christians scattered abroad, both near and far, possibly as a result of the persecution that broke out right after the stoning of Stephen, one of the, uh, the early deacons in the church, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, or else it could be related to persecution under Herod Agrippa I in 44 AD. Also, thousands of Jews had drifted out of Palestine and into the Mediterranean world for centuries prior to the coming of Christ. And now, apparently, the gospel was reaching them. So James, as James is considering the needs of all these distant believers, God directs his concern not to their, their, their relief in these trials, but rather to their response in the midst of them. In other words, our response is more important than our relief. It's a pretty key concept. Let's just pause on that for a second. This is probably rhetorical, but do you realize that God is a God who tests the genuineness and quality of your faith? Do you you get that? He absolutely does this. My goodness. You know, the God we serve, if you've read the Old Testament, you know he actually commanded someone, Abraham, to kill his only son, whom he loved, on an altar. As a sacrifice, in order to test him. Wow. It's a pretty severe test. Does that line up with the God that you conceive of in your mind? Now, I'm thankful he has never tested me to that extreme. But he could, he absolutely could. You know, do you think that your trials are ever just random or haphazard or meaningless? Because they are not. They are always intentional and purposeful and uniquely tailored to each and every one of you. Every test has a goal, and that is to expose the presence or absence of faith, of faith. The fruit of which is the character quality of steadfastness. Steadfastness. You know, two trees, think of two trees. They might look identical from the ground up, right? The only way to know just how deep their roots are is to see how they hold up under extreme wind. The tree without depth of root will just blow right over. You've probably seen pictures of that, you know, from tornadoes or hurricanes where the tree blows over and you see these scraggly little roots that just don't go deep at all. Scientists will tell you that the stress of the wind actually stimulates the tree to send its roots deeper. It's essential. I want you to listen to me really closely for just a moment now. Jesus in his humanity was not exempt from this. Hebrews 4:15 says for you know whoops let me go back. There we go. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin look at those three words in every respect Jesus was tempted in every possible way and even though he was already perfect as god the only way to perfect his humanity was through tested obedience through suffering through suffering hebrews 2:10 says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, you may not have known this when when you first got saved, but God's plan and intention is to make you perfect. Perfect. That's what verse 4 says. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It doesn't mean moral perfection in this life, but it does mean that you are mature and whole and complete. The Bible says that your faith and my faith is more precious to God than pure gold. Pure gold. And there's only one way to make gold even more precious than it already is, and that is to refine it. Refine it. Nobody likes to be refined. The process is painful. Because you, you heat up that gold so that all the impurities float to the surface, so then you can skim them off. And what's left is, is a higher carat Gold. It's a higher purity of gold. It's exactly what the apostle Peter is talking about in First Peter one three to seven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's the key verse. In this, what I just read, you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary. Underline that word necessary. It's not haphazard, it's necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, all shapes and sizes. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what James is saying. We rejoice in trials, not because we enjoy pain, but because they produce something. They produce proof of our faith and steadfastness which ultimately glorifies god paul in the book of romans says something very similar but he even gets more specific romans 5 1 to 5 therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's the key verse. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Why do we Christians rejoice in suffering when the whole rest of the world doesn't and cannot? Because we know something. We know something. We know that it's producing endurance and character and hope. But only, only when we're exercising faith in our trials. You see, suffering by itself has no value. None. There's nothing virtuous about suffering. Multitudes of people suffer without it producing anything good in their lives. But our suffering, our trials and tests and temptations do produce good because they are always in the context Of relationship. They are always in the context of God and His love for us. As Paul says in verse 5, the last part of that. It's like the old saying, you know, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. No? The most loving thing that God can do for us is to mold and sculpt us into the image of Jesus. It's the most loving thing he can do. If he didn't do that, he wouldn't be loving. Now I know some of you might be thinking to yourself, that's, that's all well and good, Perry, but some of my troubles have been caused by myself. <laughs> I agree. Jesus calls us sheep, and sheep by nature do stupid things. I was recently reminded of that when I saw this post on Facebook. Okay? Okay? <laughs> Now, it kind of looks like the top sheep kind of bumped the other one off. That's not the point of this. All right? This is a true story, I assume. (laughs) A sheep once jumped off a cliff in Turkey, and 1,500 other sheep followed it right off the cliff. Now, fortunately, only about 450, or one-third of them, died because they fell onto a soft pile of wool the other sheep. Now the point is, the point is, their pain was their own fault. Their pain was their own fault. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, why does God need to test us since he's all-knowing? He knows already what we will do in every situation and circumstance, and that's true. But he also wants us to to have an accurate assessment of where we're really at in our spiritual growth and progress. As Charles Spurgeon once said, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. So true. But you know, to assume that all trials come our way in order to teach us some lesson, that's unbiblical unbiblical. Consider two famous biblical examples of suffering, Job and Jesus. Now, the opening chapter of Job does not say Job was walking in disobedience to God, so God brought suffering to teach him a lesson. No. Rather, it says Job was blameless and upright. But you see, God allowed his suffering in order to prove its genuineness. And for other reasons, and, of course, Jesus' suffering was ob- obviously not to teach him a lesson, but to bring sinners to God. So it's true that, that all suffering is the result of sin, but it's not true that all suffering is a direct consequence of one's own personal sin. It's really important. You know, Job's counselors and friends, they assumed that. They just assumed your suffering has got to be a result of of you doing something wrong. Not true. A big part of our pain is simply simply comes from living in a fallen, broken world, you know? But the possibility does still exist that God is intentionally designing certain trials in order to correct specific sinful thoughts, words, or behaviors in me. It might be worldliness, you know, when when we adopt the, the values of the world. As God says in John, first John. do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So how does God correct that in his children? Well, it's often through various kinds of pain. Physical pain, relational pain, emotional pain, financial pain. God has lots of tools in his toolbox. Regarding how God corrects worldliness, Johnny Erickson Tata says this. She says, suffering keeps swelling our feet. So that earth's earth's shoes won't fit. I love that. God doesn't punish us as a judge. He disciplines us as a father. His discipline is always and only out of a motivation of love. And the goal is our growth in Christlikeness. As it says in Hebrews 12.11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here's the big question. How do I know if my trial is the result of A, God wanting to test me to prove if my faith is genuine, B, my own foolishness or poor choices, C, merely living in a fallen world, or D, a loving discipline to wean me from a specific sin. I mean, these are, these are four common purposes that God has for our trials. But actually, in her book, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, in her book, she gives 36 different possible reasons for our trials. And they're all biblical. They're all backed up with Scripture. 36. So the next time that you're tempted to say, Why me, God? Why me? Just remember, there's at least 36 unique biblical purposes for which God uses trials. But how do we discern which one it is? The next part of our passage, I believe, answers that question. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I think that's tied directly to that question. You know, in my trial, I am to pray and ask God for wisdom. We see this all the time in the Bible. We see God suddenly and unexpectedly withholding blessing from his people. They start experiencing drought or disease or defeat in battle, persecution or death. And so they pray and they seek the Lord and he reveals to them the reason so that they can respond appropriately. Now, In this passage here, it talks about doubting or being double-minded and unstable. This is not describing a person or even a Christian who has an occasional doubt or lapse of faith. This is describing spiritual schizophrenia, okay? The double-minded person here literally means someone whose mind is divided between God and the world. They're fickle. It's like what James describes later in this chapter when he talks about people who look at themselves in the mirror, but then when they step away, they immediately forget who they are. They're double-minded. So what does God... Who does God promise wisdom to? Well, it's the one whose hope in God is sincere, who doesn't waffle back and forth in their faith, and someone who has a genuine commitment to God. Now, there are some trials, granted... We may not know the purpose for in this life until we get to heaven. But as we seek God, he will always give us grace to endure them. And God will be glorified by our faith and we will be rewarded for it as well. So what's the substance of this kind of faith? It is a trust in God's goodness and God's purpose. And its focus is seen in 2 Corinthians 4. 16 to 18, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So why do we not lose heart in our afflictions? Because of where our eyes are looking. We don't focus on the trial. We focus on the weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, that that we are being chiseled by the master sculptor into something breathtakingly glorious. Our last section, verses 9 to 11, is somewhat difficult for Bible scholars to interpret <clears throat> says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And then it goes on. Well, the confusion here is over whether the rich man here is describing a wealthy Christian or if it's talking about a wicked person, you know, a pagan. Now, good arguments can be made either way, so this is not definitive. But one commentary I really highly respect says that James is talking about two Christians here, one poor and one wealthy. And that the point of the passage is that Christians must always evaluate themselves by spiritual rather than material standards. So, for example, to the poor believer who is tempted to feel insignificant and powerless because the world judges him on the basis of his lack of money and social status, James says, take pride in your exalted status in the spiritual realm." as one who is seated in the heavenly places with Christ himself. Then on the other hand, to the rich believer who's tempted to think way too much of himself because the world holds him in such high esteem, James says, do not take pride in your money or your social status, things that will soon fade away, but take pride in your humble status as a person who identifies with Jesus, the one who was despised and rejected by the world. Now, this interpretation really resonates with what with, with the prophet Jeremiah wrote. One of my favorite passages. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the w- mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For these things, I delight, declares the Lord. this is just so countercultural to the world that we live in, right but you know if the church is to be what God has called us to be, then this this mindset, this message needs to be taught and reinforced often, very often so I'm going to wrap up here, um, band, you can come on up, just have one last thing to share and Our final verse in this section takes us back to the subject of trials. Verse 12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, part of the reason why we don't count it all joy, which literally means full and complete joy, when we meet trials of various kinds, is because we don't value what God values. Again, Johnny Erickson taught, I, I love this quote. She says, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his Son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in my inward qualities than my outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. We often value comfort or favorable circumstances above the painful forging of Christ-like character in our lives. We prefer the path of least resistance. I am guilty of this myself. But you know, if we really understood the incalculable value of becoming more like Jesus, we would embrace our trials and, yes, even rejoice in them. I think that's the key. Ultimately, this final verse is saying that it is our love for God that causes us to endure and persevere and remain steadfast in our trials. Trials provide a unique opportunity for us to not just profess our love for God, but to prove it, to prove it. It's how Jesus demonstrated his love for the Father. And because Jesus has suffered in every way that we have, there is a special and intimate fellowship that we can enjoy with him right in the midst of our suffering. Because believe it or not, when you suffer, Jesus suffers with you. It's a mystery, but it's true. He feels your pain because you are part of his body, the church. he's, He's not a distant spectator of our suffering he feels it tangibly i believe with us so i just like to leave you with one closing thought related to that and it's a quote by a man named blake glossin it's a long quote but it's a really good thing to end on he says this christ isn't looking down his nose at your suffering he isn't disappointed you haven't figured everything out He isn't waiting for you to submit a report on the lessons you learned from your pain before He grants you His presence. He simply wants you to collapse into His loving arms. We have a sympathetic Savior who walks with us, grieves with us, and redeems our suffering for good, often teaching us precious lessons through hardships. Let's rejoice in these lessons while also remembering that God's purpose in our suffering, His purposes in our suffering are far greater than a lesson and that one day Christ will return to save us and unburden our suffering fully and forever. Amen. You guys can sit down. Uh, i just like to teach you uh, a ten-word prayer that I stumbled across in in the midst of my own uh, uh, trials lately. Uh, Simple 10-word prayer. It's this. I love you. I trust you. I wait on you. Super simple. You can write it on a Post-it note, stick it on your bathroom mirror, you know. So let's pray that. (sighs) Lord, I love you. I trust you i wait on you. And Lord, after uh, just going through these scriptures this morning, I, I really believe that you want to grow our spiritual stamina. Lord, you want us not to remain as infants in our faith, but you want to test it, not just for your sake, but for ours. And to prove the genuineness of our faith, give us opportunity to demonstrate our love for you. And I know that uh, it can be a process, but I pray you would get each and every one of us to a place where we can actually honestly say that we rejoice and consider it not just joy, but all joy in the midst of trials of every kind. And that, what a testimony to the world, Lord, that is supernatural. The world cannot understand that, and it it just points them to you, Lord. You're the only reason why we could ever do that. And we pray that uh, you would be glorified as you grow each and every one of us in that whatever next step you have for us, whatever trial, challenge that we have, deepen our faith, grow our spiritual stamina. We Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.